from, I, I think I can speak for our staff, thank you for honoring us, for loving us. Um, we're humbled by it. Um, I don't know if you're going to like this sermon today or not, Jim. <laughs> we're going to give it a shot. How's that? Uh, I'm going Latin on you, okay? And boy, I am way out of my league on Latin. I barely can speak English. But I've titled, <laughs> I've titled this message, Sola Scriptura. Did I do all right on that Latin? Yeah, I don't know. Please don't vote on it. Uh, I, I asked Wednesday night, what is October 31? And someone said, that's the last day of the month. The group here on Wednesday night, you just got to be around here to appreciate them. And then someone said, Halloween. And I said, what else? And someone said, All Saints Day. And I said, what does that mean, All Saints Day? And I really felt like I've let everybody down when there was just uh, silence. It was the day, the anniversary of October 31, 1517, that a man named Martin Luther nailed five, 95 objections, they call them thesis, that 95 objections to how the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church was handling things. Now that was a dangerous thing to do in those days and times because when most people did that, they didn't live very long. But Martin Luther happened to have some protection and I'll get into that in just a moment but there was four parts of what he came upon as was his theology, what his statement of faith was. And it was faith alone, by Scripture alone. That's what sola scriptura means, by Scripture alone, in Christ alone, and by grace alone. By Scripture alone was the primary conviction in Martin Luther's life that led him to be targeted by the powers of the Roman Catholic Church, principally Pope Leo X. You see, everything, everything in the Christian faith rests on this. Everything. You say, in Christ alone. Well, how do we know about Christ? This. Everything we know about him is right here. And so, if you tear this book down, you tear down everything. And this is why this book is such a danger in certain places of our world, and it's prohibited to be distributed in certain places of the world. The truth about the person of Jesus Christ is about this, this what this book is about. His death on the cross, his resurrection, him giving us eternal life, a transformation that, in the Lord's own words, is being born again or born of the Spirit, born from above. What Martin Luther really got under his skin to do what he did on that October 31, 1517, was that some preachers had come from the Vatican in Rome and they were preaching and selling certificates that would help people get out of purgatory. 
Um, and they needed the money to finish St. Peter's Basilica. So it was a fundraiser. And they were going into the town where Luther was the pastor of a, a parish. He was a monk. He was a, a priest. And he saw these poor people. It's not the poor people we have today. He saw poor people scraping together enough coins to go and get a certificate that guaranteed that their loved ones who were in purgatory could be, who, who could escape purgatory and go on to heaven. Now, where in the world did they get that idea of purgatory? That, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it's not from here. It, it was part of the control of the church at that time to keep people under submission and an obligation and also to raise money to finish St. Peter's Basilica. Luther was defending his church. He's defending the poor people of his church. And that's why Luther was passionate about sola scriptura, that it had to be in the Bible and by the Bible alone. In January of 1521, just a little over two years after, or three years after he had posted the 95 Objections, Luther was defrocked and excommunicated as a priest by Pope Leo X. And what that meant was that not only was he no longer a priest in the Catholic Church, they pronounced anathema over him, which meant that he was now on his way to hell. Because the church was the place where salvation took place, and if you got kicked out of the church, you were kicked out of the kingdom of God. You were no longer saved. You were lost. And, of course, this made Luther not mince his words when, when uh, he responded. He had already had a salvation experience. He had already come to faith. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 3 in just a moment because uh, I, didn't, I don't have this in my notes, but if you ever have a chance to watch this movie on Re Revelation Media of Luther, it starts with, Luther was a law student. He was, this is what his dad wanted him to be. He wanted him to be a lawyer. And he was caught in a rainstorm and lightning. It's an electrical storm. Lightning's flashing all around him. And he's fearful that God is going to strike him dead because he was always concerned about whether he, met, he, he was able to get God's favor and he falls on his knees with driving rain and lightning all around him. And he says, okay, okay, I want to be a monk. I'll be a monk. Just don't kill me. I'll be a monk. Two weeks, he had sold all of his legal books and then went into a monastery to become a monk. So this is how he lived his life until he had a personal encounter with Jesus that took this guilt and this shame off of him that he could never get rid of. In fact, when he would go to priests to confess his sins, and that's how you got forgiveness, absolution, you'd go to a priest, confess your sins, and he would absolve you of those sins, and then you could go on and now be clear to go to heaven if you died that day. But he was so consumed with the least little thing he might have done wrong that some of the priests says, listen, Leave, go away, and come back and tell me when you've really done something wrong. 
Because every little thing, every little idea that he thought was standing between him and God, until he had had that encounter with Jesus and discovered the great truth in God's word, justification by faith. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, if you have your Bibles there. I think it'll be up on the screen. If you don't, read now the NIV. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, you can't do enough good to get there. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. We know we can never measure up to what God expects. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But listen to verse 24. We know verse 23 fairly well. And all are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That word justified, we, we hear it, but do you know exactly what it means? It comes from the word for righteous. And it means to be declared righteous before God. Think about that. That we're justified by faith. God declares us righteous. That's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? Because none of us need to tell, no one needs to tell me where my struggles are. <laughs> and nobody needs to tell you where you feel like you lack this way or you lack that way. We know where we're at, right? And we can never declare on our own, Lord, I think I finally got enough done where I'm okay with you. Because that was the whole subject here. Justification through faith, not by works. This took away, because the Catholic Church was, had such a control over people when people started coming to this conclusion that I'm not justified by what I do, by all the rules that I'm supposed to do, and by doing everything I'm supposed to do for the church, I'm justified because Jesus died for me and was raised from the dead, and I have eternal life, and nothing can make me earn that. And so when the church kind of controls people that you got to stay in our system, or you're going to be lost forever, when people discover that that's not the way it is, the church has to do something to try to keep control. One of the great stories related to Martin, Martin Luther is, um, and I've, some of you have heard this story, back in 1934, a pastor in the Atlanta area traveled to Germany, and he researched the Reformation, his name was Michael King, Pastor Michael King. And when he came back to Atlanta, he went and legally had his name changed to Martin Luther King Sr. And he had a five-year-old son in the house that he changed his name from Michael King Jr. to Martin Luther King Jr. And it's amazing how many people do not know that he was not born with that name, it was because his dad, who was a pastor, was so impressed with, my, you know, I never thought about changing my name like that. I don't think you would have went for that anyway. <laughs> but can you imagine a pastor so moved? Like I said, I haven't been moved that much. 
so moved to come back and change his name and change his son's name. And of course, we know his famous son, don't we? Martin Luther, in his own mind, believed that he was going to be martyred. He believed that just like his friend John Huss, what's his friend? John Huss lived 100 years before Martin Luther. And John Huss was a Bohemian pastor. And he was challenged by Rome. He was tried by the Pope and he was condemned to death. And they pronounced anathema on him and declared that he was going to hell. And they took him out and burned him at the stake. You know what one of his grievances were? He taught people in his church hymns in their native language. And that was a big no-no. So a hundred years later, here's Martin Luther... And he is fortunate enough to have someone that poor old John Huss didn't have. He had Frederick, who was over that part of Germany, a political figure who really protected Martin Luther. If he had not had Frederick on his side, he would have been arrested and burned at the stake. And boys, Rome would have loved to got a hold of Luther. They tried their best to lure him to Rome, but he wouldn't go. One year, one year before Luther nailed his objections to the Roman church, a man by the name of Erasmus completed his Greek uh, New Testament. He, he gathered all the ancient manuscripts and he wrote what they call was a Textus Receptus. Almost all of the translations of the Bible, the New Testament, was made through his work one year. He wasn't as vocal as Luther, so I guess he escaped Rome's wrath. But when you take a look at your Bible and you just consider that we got this book through the death of people. People were martyred because they were translating the the scriptures into the English language. John Wycliffe, William Tyndall, they were enemies of the church because they dared was were giving the word of God in the language of people. I don't think we appreciate this book enough. And, you know, maybe it's a, well, this is not a history lesson, by the way, and forgive me if it's coming across that way. But I do believe we have a gross lack of education on how we get, how we got this and the history that we come through. It seems that Luther did not mean for those 95 theses to be printed and sent around to everybody. He just posted them to say, this is our objection to you preachers with these indulgences being in our town. But he sent some to some of his friends for them to look it over and give feedback where he didn't know that some of them went into the printing press and printed it and sent it out everywhere. So now it was out. But here's some samples of these objections. This is number 50, 51, 52, 53, 54. You can look them up. It's a really interesting read. And can I just stop here? You and I would not agree to everything Martin Luther said. He wasn't a perfect man by no means. He had a lot of flaws. But in his day and time, what he was doing was unprecedented. He was extremely intelligent. He was a great theologian. But he had the will to not back away from a confrontation, which put him in the crosshairs. But here's one of the samples of those theses. 
Number 50. Christians ought to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgent preachers, he would rather that the Basilica of St. Peter were burned to ashes than to build it with the skin, flesh, and bodies of his sheep. Christians ought to be taught that the Pope would and should wish to give of his own money, even though he had to sell the Basilica of St. Peter to many of those from whom certain hawkers of indulgences conjole money. It was, it was known that the Pope lived in luxury, so he was like, why don't you pay with your own money? Number 52, it is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgent com- commissary or even the Pope were to offer his own soul as security. This is 53. Now listen, they, they commended Martin Luther to hell. It says, you're going to hell, anathema. You cannot be saved anymore. Well, here's Luther's response. They, the Pope and his emissaries, are enemies of Christ. He even called the Pope Antichrist one time. That probably hurt his feelings. They are enemies of of Christ. And the Pope who forbid altogether the preaching of the word of God in some churches in order that indulgences be preached in others. And the last one, injury is done to the word of God when... In the same sermon, an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences than to the word. Sola Scriptura, he believed that you ought to preach the Bible and not practices of the church. Luther became a defender of the people. It was the people. And he also felt for those who shared his sentiment. And yet they were afraid to be open about. He was just an open man. He remained an influence in Wittenberg where he pastored. And Frederick actually saved his life. I'm going to offer a couple of things here. You see, when someone like Martin Luther stands up to authorities for the defense of truth, it gets contagious. It gets real contagious. And then people start asking Luther for help in their struggle. He was a brilliant theologian, smart, sharp, but oh, rock solid. You couldn't put fear in that man, even though he probably had a good dose of it. He received a letter smuggled out of a convent. And I will just stop here and say, if you want to read a really, really great book, Martin Luther by Eric Metaxas. It's a great read. And in the book, it's, a lot of this is recorded in that book. Luther received a letter that was smuggled out of a convent where nuns were there doing their part for the Catholic Church. Twelve nuns wanted to escape. And they knew that Luther had a compassion for those who wanted to get out, get out of their commitment, whether it was nuns or priests, And they begged for him to help them escape. It was illegal for them to leave the convent. He had a friend in that city that sold fish to the convent or brought fish to the convent. 
And in the middle of the night, his covered wagon showed up outside that convent, and those 12 nuns jumped in that wagon, and off they went. 30-mile ride to a place of safety. And it was later on they arrived in Wittenberg where Luther was at. And they were very appreciative. So Luther thought the best thing for him to do is help find these women husbands. And most people believe that they were ready after all those years in the convent to get a husband. Every single one of them but one were able to find a husband. The other one was Catherine von Bora. She went by the name Kathy. She was the one who sent the letter to Luther saying, please help us. We, she was sent to a school for girls associated with the church at, the, at five years of age and never was allowed to go back to her family. So she spent her teenage years confined to a, a convent. Luther thought about marrying, but he said, I'm kind of past that. And I'll just kind of abbreviate this. It turns out that Catherine said something about that she would be open to marrying him if he was interested. She was 26 and he was 41 and he was interested. (laughs) And they got married. A former monk and a former nun. I don't know what you think. That's a great story. <laughs> that is an absolute. I, tell you, I will tell you ahead of time, their wedding and everything associated with, when you read it in the book, I'm not responsible for any of your reaction to it. <laughs> read it at your own risk. But they had six children, three boys and three girls. Little Elizabeth died when she was only eight months old. Magdalena, a beautiful, healthy 13-year-old, was suddenly struck with sickness. And it looked like it was going to be terminal. Luther was holding his 13-year-old daughter in his arms when she took her last breath. The other four, the remaining daughter and the three boys, grew into adulthood into family life. Luther died in 1546, 21 years after their marriage. And Kathy would die from injuries suffered when she fell out of a cart that jolted her out of the cart. And the injury she, about three months later, died in 1552. You know there's a battle for truth today. You realize that? You think about what... (laughs) Information, misinformation, we, we just, we're just in the throes, aren't we? But there's a battle for truth. And this book is our source of truth. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, he said. There's no other way. But that truth, the truth, not a truth, he is the truth. I want our praise team to come back up. The church cannot save people. 
Church has never been able to save people. The church is the result of people getting saved, coming to know the Lord. Not long ago, the God smuggler, Brother Andrew, maybe some of you are aware of him, recently passed away. Brother Andrew made a story of himself because he did some of the most dangerous things that people could have done without losing his life over. He was called the God smuggler because for years in the old Soviet Union, he would smuggle in Bibles to the Soviet Union. If caught, he would have been in prison and probably executed. Why are countries today, China, North Korea, why are certain countries afraid of this book? The same way the Catholic church leadership was afraid of Luther, that if people got the truth, they couldn't control them anymore. And that is why there's a battle for truth. Would you stand with me? If you haven't trusted the Lord completely with your life, as we pray, and this prayer is going to lead into water baptism, so after the prayer, you, you can be seated, and we'll have water baptism here in just a moment. But Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that you love. Life is so short. On this earth, it's a vapor. But there's an eternity there that when we take our last breath, we step into that eternity. And it's the eternity that you paved the way for us to be with you through your death and resurrection. It's my prayer, Lord, every single one of us in this room have come to that place of surrender. Say, you're right, Lord. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't repair my brokenness, but you can. You can heal me. You can save me. You can renew me. You can give me hope. You can break off these things I can't been able to kick on my own. You can tear apart the things that have bound me. And Lord, may that man, that woman, that young person that may be in this building, that, that is a prayer in their soul. And, and may they whisper it out to you even now. Say, Lord, save me. Save me from me. Save me from my decisions. Save me from my failures. Save me, Lord. Redeem me this morning. Make my life different. Renew me. Write my name in your book, Lord.